The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. Well, welcome as we continue on our verse-by-verse journey through the book of Revelation. And welcome to those of you who thought you were arriving for the 9 o'clock service. (laughs) Yes, welcome. It is now 10 a.m. or 10.20 a.m. right now. All right, let me remind you, Just I'd like to do a quick review as we begin each week for some folks who perhaps just joining in a little bit late. The genre of the document in the book of Revelation, we've learned it's two key, or three genres combined. Genre meaning the type of document that it is. We learned it's an apocalyptic document, um, meaning it's a document where it has high symbolism, all sorts of symbolism, the colors, the numbers, uh, everything about it is symbolic. It's an apocalyptic document. That was a, an actual type of document, very popular, between about 200 BC and 100 AD, and even before that to a degree. Daniel, Ezekiel have all sorts of apocalyptic elements in them. We said it's also a prophetic document. Um, It it is God speaking into the circumstances and situations of individuals at that time. And it's also a letter. It was written by the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, who wrote 1st and 2nd and 3rd John as well in your New Testament. So it's a letter written by the Apostle John, written from a prison camp, uh, like a first century Alcatraz, the island of Patmos, is a small island just off the the coast of modern-day Turkey. It was written during a time of increasing persecution, probably written around 96 AD, near the end of John's life. Uh, He was in exile because he refused to participate in the Caesar worship, the Caesar cult of the day. And it was written to seven specific churches in the region, okay? So it was a letter written to seven specific churches. It'd be like John writing a letter to the church in in Vancouver and and Chilliwack and Langley and Surrey and Hope, you know, and Kelowna and so on. So it was written to seven specific congregations in the year about 96 A.D., Uh, during a time when persecution was really beginning to increase on this early church and was about to get much worse. And that's really a lot of what uh, the book of Revelation was about. It was warning and preparing these churches for the impending um, difficulties that that were about to, to be laid upon them. But it also has application to all Christ followers, just like every other book in the New Testament. You know, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Ephesians, and so on. Those were also letters written to specific churches in specific circumstances at a specific time. Yet, we still today draw principles and truths out of them. The same application, the same principle applies when it comes to the book of Revelation. Now, let me give you a sense of what's going on at this stage in the letter known as the Revelation. Imagine a coach calling each individual player on his hockey team by name or soccer team, okay? And that coach is speaking specifically to each player, calling each player into his office, okay? And that coach is speaking to each individual player regarding the present state of that player's game, where that player is doing well, where that player needs to step up his game. Well, then after the coach has addressed them as individuals, he then addresses the entire team and he talks big picture to the whole team. He talks about what that team is about to face ahead of them. Well, that's sort of what's happening in the book of Revelation. We are presently still at the first part of that coaching technique. We are presently still listening in as the coach is speaking to the individuals one at a time. So we have a seat in his office and we're listening as he calls in different 
players, different churches individually, and he speaks to them individually. In a couple of weeks, the coach is going to step back and talk big picture. And when he does, the apocalyptic imagery will go into overdrive, as we'll see. But that's still to come. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. We're still listening in as the coach is interacting with his players one-on-one. And so far, the coach, Jesus, has addressed the church in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and Thyatira. And today, he has called the church of Sardis into his office. Now, as your outline says, there's a pattern that Jesus is sort of following as he addresses these seven churches. There's a bit of a repeating pattern. It changes a little bit for a couple of them, but for the most part, there's a repeating pattern. It begins with a description of the character of Jesus, then a description of what Jesus knows about each church. He commends them for their strengths, and, and he also rebukes them for some sins of commission and omission that they're experiencing. And then Jesus typically would have a call to repentance with a warning of consequences if they don't repent. And then there would be typically a description of the reward that was waiting and promised for them for their faithfulness and their overcoming. And remember, overcoming is a theme here. To those who overcome, to those who overcome. Overcoming implies something's coming at you that you have to overcome. Okay? There's a wave coming at you. Be prepared for it. But if you overcome, there's a reward. So let's see how this plays out in the message to the church in Sardis. Let's pick it up. We're going to read Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write this. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you don't wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy." The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I'll never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, what's the historical context of of Sardis? Because this is a specific letter written to those specific people at that specific time. Well, Sardis, back in the year AD 96, was a city of between 60 and 100,000 people. Between 60,000 and 100,000 people. It was the most ancient of the cities, having been founded in 1200 BC. In the 6th century BC, it was considered to be the most beautiful and powerful city, one of the most beautiful and powerful cities in the world. It was the first city, by the way, uh, to mint gold and silver coins. It claimed to be the first city to learn the art of dyeing wool, coloring wool. It was famous for its wool, for its textiles, and for its jewelry. It had everything, Sardis. It had climate, it had location, it had culture, had economy, it had wealth. But by the first century AD, the century that this was written, it had declined. So Sardis had declined, but not in the minds of its citizens. And that's kind of crucial. So it was a city that was on the downward slope. But if you talk to the average Sardisian, 
I guess, Sardinian, I don't know, Sardisite. Um, they thought it was still the greatest city in the world. Famous archaeologist Sir William Ramsey wrote this in regard to Sardis. He said this, Nowhere was there a greater example of the melancholy contrast between past splendor and present decay. He said, so this was a city that was really, they thought they were something that they're not. In fact, just a week or two ago, I was, was, you know, these rainy, cold days, you know, one of those days, and on Turner Classic Movies was the old movie, What Happened, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Remember that movie with Betty Davis? And as I was watching this movie, I thought, man, that's the church in Sardis. Uh, Betty Davis played a character who was a child star. And she was still in her mind, this child star. She was now quite on in years, but in her mind, she's acting and dressing like she's still this little child star. And I thought to myself, wow, that is the church in Sardis. They're still living a fantasy. They're still living in their past, and they're denying the reality that's all around them. Well, this church of Sardis was built upon a 1,500-foot acropolis, so like a large cliff, if you can think in those terms, with cliffs on three of the four sides. Cliffs on three of the four sides. So it had a reputation of being impenetrable as a city. You just could not conquer Sardis. It was up on this cliff, cliff on three of four sides. You just could not attack the city, so it was thought. But historically, it had been conquered twice because it was complacent. It failed to see raiders who were climbing up the cliffs. That's what happened to them twice. They had lost their city twice because they were too lazy to watch. Okay? So here's the specific message to the church in Sardis. Begins with a description of the character of Christ. He says in verse 1, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, what's this all about? What are the seven spirits of God? Isn't there just one Holy Spirit? What's this? Well, as your outline says, that's symbolic language for the Holy Spirit. It's symbolic language for the Holy Spirit, seven representing divine fullness. Remember, numbers in apocalyptic documents are not statistics necessarily, they are symbolic, okay? So the seven spirits of God. It could be, some scholars think, it could be a possible allusion to Isaiah 11, 2 to 3. I don't know if I put that on your outline or not. Just write Isaiah 11, 2 to 3, and let me read that passage for you. Isaiah says, um, I'll start at verse 1 of chapter 11 of Isaiah. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. So like a branch will come up from the, the stump of Jesse. Um, from the tree trunk of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom, understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, and fear of the Lord. Now that's a sevenfold spirit, seven descriptions of the spirit, the spirit of the Lord. So some think it could be an allusion to that. But it's, it's representing the divine fullness, the, the, the perfection of the Spirit of God, the sevenfold. Seven is a is symbolic number of perfection and the fullness and perfection of God. And then he says the seven stars. This represents the seven angels, which represent the seven churches. We remember from back in chapter 1, verse 20, the seven stars represent the seven angels, which represent the seven churches. And then 
It's followed by a description of what Christ knows about the church. Now, usually, we saw in the pattern, it begins with a, a word of commendation. However, I don't know if my jacket's rubbing up against this mic or what, so I'll just try this, Andreas. Something's going on here. Just a second. I think we're going to need a new power, a new pack here. Immediately, get that right now. <laughs> um, all right, where do we go? Okay, then followed by a description of what Christ knows about the church. Usually we said it begins with the word of commendation. However, Christ changes the order here and it begins with the word of rebuke. Okay? He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Okay? Yeah, exactly. Ouch. He says, I know what you've done in the past. I know what you're known for over the years. However, you are not what you appear to be, Sardis. You are not living up to your reputation, he's saying. So as your outline says, they had taken on, it appears, they had taken on the nature of the city in which they lived. They had taken on the nature of the city in which they lived. Sardis, you think you're one of the greatest, most beautiful cities in the world, but you're not but you're acting like you are. Church in Sardis, you have a reputation of being a great church and alive, and you once were, but you're not anymore. They had become rich and soft and decadent. He says, you're actually dead. By the way, how does a church die? How does a church become dead? Um, actually, there's studies of have been done on this, and, and uh, I, I do a teaching sometimes in leadership settings with churches and boards and so on, um, where we go through the life cycle. There's life cycles of an organization, and there's a study called the life cycles of a church. And you can actually follow a church. In fact, I want to make sure I get this right. Birth, infancy, uh, childhood, adolescence, and then adult, adulthood, and then you tip down, and you hit maturity, and then empty nest. And everyone said, <laughs> and then retirement, and then old age. Sorry, folks, and then death. Yeah. And essentially, there are four, four key ingredients that, that keep an organization like a church alive. There's vision. There's relationships. This is all going somewhere, by the way. There's programs. And there's management. Those are four dynamics in every church. And at the birth of a church, it's capital V, Small RPM, meaning there's vision, there's great ideas about why we exist, what we're trying to accomplish. This group of people get together, and they have all vision, no relationships, no programs, no management, really. And then infancy is capital V, capital RPM. So you've got big vision, and then relationships are being built um, amongst each other, and you're starting to grow. You have no church programs or no boards or management, but you're, you're an infant church. And then childhood happens when you have capital V, small r, capital P, small m. 
Back here, your relationships, you start to pour your relationship energy into building programs. Hey, we need a youth group. We need a nursery. We need some programs like other churches in our area. So you lose energy in your relationships as you try to build the programs. Well, then adolescence is the, the capital R gets back to a capital again. You can walk and chew gum now. And you've got enough people. You have vision still. You've got strong relationships. You've got strong programs. Your management is still kind of loosely done, sort of a group of people in the hallway making decisions. And then finally, you reach adulthood. Everything is capitalized. Capital V, R, P, M. You've got a managing board that works well. You've got vision. You've got relationships. You've got programs. This is the church is as good as it gets. But churches, when they reach this point, rarely do they realize we're there. Rarely do they think, hey, this is as good as it gets. We always think there's something better beyond the horizon. And then the first tip down, what happens is you get a small R, a small V, capital R, P, M. The vision diminishes. You lose sight. You forget what fueled you at the very beginning. You've still got great relationships, great programs, great management, and people don't even really know that you've tipped over. Okay? And then there's uh, the, the, the next step, is, which is uh, empty nest, is small v, uh, capital R, small p, capital M. The programs diminish a bit. The level of excellence isn't quite what it used to be, and people are beginning to notice it. And they're not even quite sure why. They don't realize that their vision is gone, okay? And so what happens next is small v, small r, because you, you put your relationship energy back into programs. We're going to take one last shot at this. And so we're going to get a better youth group again. We're going to spend the... We don't have a lot of money anymore because our congregation is, is decreasing, but we're going to spend money in staff to make really good... Uh, singing Christmas, we're going to have an Easter Christmas tree as well. And we're going to, you know, we're going to do whatever it takes. And, but then what happens is that doesn't really work. And at old age, you've got, people don't want to invite people to the church anymore. They're a little embarrassed. Um, and then, so you've just got the strong management. And then finally, death is just a small M where what you do is the board divides the assets. You're, you become a, 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 a church where, you know, you, other churches are renting from your building and you're living off rental income and so on and so forth. Now, you see, the key is, what, why does a church die? It loses its vision. A church forgets why it exists. It forgets what it did at first. It forgets its values that it has at its core. It's a loss of vision, forgetting why they exist. Stop valuing what they initially valued. And that's what happened to Sardis. And so Christ then calls for repentance. He says, wake up, verses 1b to 3. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you don't wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. So he's saying, listen, return, repent, wake up to, to what you once had. and Hold it fast again. Get back to the initial vision that you had. As your outline says, wake up literally means become watchful. Become watchful. Folks, remember this history of the city. It's history of complacency. They were a city that they lost their city twice because they were too lazy to, to keep watch. They were not racked by suffering from without or heresy lingering from within like other congregations. There was no rumors of immoral decay here that Jesus is speaking to. Yet as your outline says, they were completely blind 
They were completely blind to the danger they were in. Completely blind to it. 1 Corinthians 10. The Apostle Paul says this. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. He says, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And that's what was happening here to the church in Sardis. They thought they were fine and they had no, reali- no, um, no recognition, no understanding they were actually crumbling from within. And Jesus says, strengthen what remains. As your outline says, there was hope. There's hope here still. There's hope where there were faint embers that could be rekindled. So he says, strengthen what remains. He says, you're not completely dead. You, you still have, you know, your heart may have stopped beating, but you've still got brain waves here. So there's hope. There's faint embers that can be rekindled. Strengthen what remains. And then he says, I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Uh, these, as your outline says, they were easily distracted, these folks. They were easily distracted. Um, they had no piercing vision or motivating mission. They were coasting. They were easily distracted. They were coasting, as your outline says. By the way, I find it interesting, uh, reading up on the church in Sardis, uh, archaeologists found other pagan temples being built, huge temples that were unfinished. They just never finished building them in Sardis. So they are under construction, but they never did quite finish building them. They were easily distracted, and they were coasting. And then number four, he says, Remember therefore what you have received and heard, and hold it fast and repent. So as your outline says, it's not just a call to recollection. So it's not just a call to recollection or remembering, but it's a call to action. So it's not just a call to recollection, but also a call to action. He says, if you don't come, if you don't repent, he said, I will come like a thief. Again, remember, Jesus is speaking to code to this city. Remember the history. If you don't repent, I'll come like a thief. You know, like the other two times in the history of your city, when you guys were asleep and thieves came crawling up the cliffs because you weren't on guard, you weren't watching. He's saying, be careful, watch. These are all code words. These are hot button terms that people in Sardis would right away know what Jesus was talking about. Thirdly, as your outline says, there's a word of commendation. He says, even though all this is true, he says, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they're worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. Again, this is an apocalyptic document. Colors are very symbolic. I will never blot out that, the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That phrase, who have not soiled their clothes... From what I've read, it appears that appearances were very important in Sardis. In fact, you could not approach a pagan god in the pagan temples in Sardis if your clothes were soiled, if they were dirty. One author wrote that if you wore soiled garments in Sardis, you could have your name removed from the list of citizens in the city. So whether or not Jesus is alluding to that, we don't know. But he he picks up on this concept of soiled garments. You've not soiled your clothes. So some of you are just lax and you're allowing your clothes to be soiled. And you know you can't even be a citizen in Sardis with soiled clothes. You can't go into a pagan temple with soiled clothes. Yet some of you are allowing your so-called clothes to be soiled. It's a symbolic, it's a metaphor. He says, but not everyone has. 
Some of you haven't, he says. He says, they will walk with me dressed in white. The one who is, is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. This, as your outline says, this is likely an allusion to the Roman triumphal procession. The Roman triumphal procession. The Apostle Paul alluded to this as well. I think it was in 2 Corinthians. You know, we always uh, uh, talking about in, in triumphal procession. What would happen was, would be the Romans, when they took over land, there was an order, there was a parade. It was a parade, essentially. And uh, there was a special line, a special order of things that would happen in the parade. That's why the Apostle Paul talked about we are an aroma, you know, in this procession. To some were the smell of life, to others were the smell of death. Um, that was an allusion to this triumphal procession because at the, near the end of this procession would be the chains, of, the, the captives in chains, and there'd be incense ahead of them being waved as a, a, a celebration and, and a, a incense to their gods saying, you know, we have, uh, we have conquered this other land. And that incense would be the smell of life to the people along the parade route and be the smell of death to people who were being conquered. He says, you, you, we're like that. We're the smell of fragrance of life to some and the smell of death to others. Um, and so likely, again, here, uh, John is alluding to a Roman triumphal procession here because would, people would line the, the, the streets dressed in white, celebrating this great victory. Likely what he's referring to here. That, that would have been a cultural touchstone that they all would have understand. They'll walk with me dressed in white. The one who's victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. So probably alluding to a Roman triumphal procession here, part of their culture. And he says, I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life. This book of life is, is a theme that uh, is throughout Scripture, actually. It's alluded to in Exodus chapter 32. Let me read Exodus 32, verse 32 and 33. It says, so... Mo um, I'll start at verse 31. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Um, Psalm 69, 28. There's another reference to this book of life. Psalm 69, verse 28. Um, May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. Uh, speaking of the unrighteous. He says in Philippians chapter 4, in the New Testament, Philippians 4 verse 3, uh, the Apostle Paul alludes to the book of life. He says, Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. And then the Apostle John alludes to it again in Revelation chapter 21, which will be coming up in a few weeks. Revelation 21 verse 17 says, The angel measured... No, it's not right. It's the wrong verse. I, it's in there somewhere. <laughs> Someone else find it for me. 
2017? No, there isn't a 2017. Well, I'll find it later. But it's certainly, I think it's 22, I believe. No? Oh, well. I'll not waste our time today, but it's in there. Again, an allusion to the Book of Life. 2015? Oh, yeah, it's 2015 is there. Anyone whose name was not found written in the Book of Life was thrown into the Lake of Fire. Is there another allusion to it? 2219 as well. Excellent. This is the Bible study. People yelling out verses. Yes. Um, and if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this scroll. Okay? So, there you go. This book of life is symbolic of, of, uh, of uh, being present, being recorded, being uh, in the kingdom of God, having accepted God's gift of salvation. All right, look at that. We actually are a little bit ahead of schedule here. This is wonderful. So, we have... Extra time for questions today. Any questions about what we've talked about today? Is there a book or an article that expounds on the life of the churches? Um, if, you were to, if you were to Google a life cycle of a church, life cycle of a church, I'm trying to remember the, the author from which I got this many years ago. I can't remember. But just Google life cycle of a church, and I'm sure that will direct you to it. Yes, Ruth? Where's Broadway in this? Oh, we are clearly at Adelaide. We are, yeah, we are. We're millennials. We're, um, actually, when I first came to Broadway Church, my, our first board retreat, is this still on? Yeah. Our first board retreat, we did a, a, did a teaching on this, and our board pinned where we felt we were nine years ago and what we had to do to return to, to re restore vision to our church. So something our church worked on. Yes, John. Okay, the question, if it's dead isn't dead, what does it mean? Well, it, it's a metaphor, John. It's like, um, uh, like I said earlier, how do you even define dead? We've got a few doctors in the crowd today. Are you dead when your heart's dead or are you dead when your brain dead? Um, when are you legally dead? Um, and after you're dead, you can actually be brought back to life. So I don't think Jesus is speaking clinically here. It's not Dr. Jesus. Um, he's, he's, it's a metaphor. You're dead. Um, you're, you're, you're not what you appear to be. Um, but there's still an ember there. In fact, let me put it to you this way, speaking from my own experience. Uh, years ago, when I was uh, in Bible college, I was invited to speak at a youth retreat to a, a church in London, Ontario. And uh, so we had the Friday night meeting, whatever, with the campfire and so on. And then the next morning, Saturday morning, we all woke up and went out and to try to start the fire again in the morning. And, uh, you know, it was, the, the, it was dead. The fire was gone. It was out. There was nothing, not even smoke, nothing. And what I had, uh, so we, we put some logs on top of this, some fresh logs, and then I had a styrofoam cup of lighter fluid. <laughs> yeah, you can see where this is going. And I said, okay, well, I'll pour some lighter fluid on this so then we can light it. So I poured lighter fluid, and... The, it just, I can still see it to this day, the flame, so there must have been some single spark somewhere down there, and it caught, and the flame went up the, the, the liquid as it was pouring down into my hand, the styrofoam, styrofoam cup caught fire, I jumped back, I can still see this all happening, it gets spread down on my leg, my hand's on fire, my legs are on fire, 
had to be taken to the hospital and bandaged all up because I had severe burns. It looked dead. And it was dead, but there was still an ember of life there somewhere. And I think that's what Jesus is saying too. Now suddenly God is showing me why that happened to me. This moment <laughs> made it all worthwhile. There you go. John, you're the reason why I was burned. <laughs> yes. Is that when I lost my hair? <laughs> no, I actually had hair back then. I lost the hair in my hand back then, I'll tell you that much. Other questions? Yes, right here. Okay, good question. So Bob's asking, you know, are we going to go into more into the book of life? Because it looks like if your name's written in the book, but then it says later, then you're saved. But later, at the end, the great white throne judgment, the books are opened. And, it's, and these people are clearly not saved, is what you're saying. So again, here's a couple of responses I would have off the top for that, Bob, is that we need to be careful on one level of not holding apocalyptic writing too literal or too close to um, forensically, okay? Because um, there are times when, you know, John speaks about, I was raised up here and then I... I'm before the throne, and then he's talking about stuff that's happening on the earth. It's just very convoluted. And if you were to literally talk about it, look at it, it, it can be confusing. And so if you can get caught up, you can get caught up in the details when he's speaking about generalities. He's speaking in metaphorical terms, okay? So having said that, the book of life is a theme that's not unique to John. As we saw, it's already in the Psalms and so on. So the book of life is a Jewish concept of... Um, of this, uh, of it, it's a metaphor. I don't think there's literally a physical book. Because again, we have to let's go back to our doctrine of God class. God's not literally a physical being, and so it's not as though so God doesn't have a hand with a pen to write in a physical book that's really thick up in the heavens somewhere. Because the heavens are not even a physical realm. So let's just get all that in our minds again. It's speaking metaphorically. There's a book of life. There is God has written down somewhere. God is aware. It's recorded in God's mind, in his memory, in his thoughts, who is following him and who is not. That's what the book of life is trying to communicate. Now, having said that, later in Revelation, it talks about, yes, the great judgment, and it says the books. It doesn't say the book. The books were opened, you know, and so there's an implication that, that, you know, the books are recording every deed that we've done in our lives. And then the book of life, he speaks, was, was opened as well. So it's almost like, which book are you going to rely on? There's the book of your deeds. <laughs> that's a, that's a, that book doesn't end well, put it that way. And then there's the book of life. And so you're in one of these books. And if your name's not in the book of life, and you're relying on your deeds in those other books, that's a dead end, quite literally. So I would, I would be careful about taking uh, metaphors like this too literally and making them too literal. Um, actually, no, they didn't all die. There are still, there are still Christian communities uh, in some of these places. Now, most, there's only one of these cities that still exists. What did we say that was? It was a couple weeks ago. Um, Pergamum, I believe it was. Uh, it's in, um, I'm trying to remember that this, the, the, there's, a, there's still a, an active church in that city. And it's the only one of these seven cities that still exists historically. It's in Turkey. Um, 
And so, uh, but is that, is that tied to this? I don't know. That's a fair question. I, I, I don't know. The question was, for folks watching on video, um, none of these churches still exist today. There are no churches, though there is one still. But all the others, they don't exist anymore. So were they all dead? Did they all die? But the truth is that not all of them, some of them that no longer exist today, were commended back then. Um, so the, Jesus didn't accuse all of them of, the, of being dead. So it could just be a historical reality, could be a geographical reality. Uh, some of these, there's just no city, so there's no church to be there because the city doesn't exist anymore. Uh, very back? Right. Um, so so if, at the very beginning of this study, we talked about apocalyptic literature, and we talked about the seven churches, and we talked about different interpretations different people have. And one of the interpretations, which, which you're saying you hold to, Oh, by the way, again, let me repeat the questions for the people watching in Poco or online. Um, the question is that these churches could represent different, uh, uh, not necessarily seven specific geographical churches, but seven different um, times of church history. Some would call those, are called dispensations, seven dis different dispensations and so on. And you're saying the last four are the only ones that talk where Jesus says, I'm coming again. Um, however, that's true and it's not true because the book of Revelation, first of all, was written to all seven of them. And at the end, he does say, I'm coming soon. And that's written to all the other churches as well. So to say that because he didn't specifically say it to all seven, therefore he wasn't saying to the first three that he's, he's not coming, I, they'd have to then ignore the rest of the book, which I think would, which I think would be a mistake. But secondly... Yes, it is a possibility, and some interpreters would say these seven churches represent seven different dispensations in, in church history. We addressed that a few weeks ago, and people are completely within their realm of interpretation to, to, to hold to that view if they'd like. You have a follow-up question, sir? Yes, so, yeah, that's legitimate. And I, I, you're saying that, you know, there's messages to these churches that we should follow in the end times and so on. And I would fully agree that that is true. That Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures God breathed and useful for teaching, correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness. So absolutely. And that's what we, we said earlier here that these seven churches, there's seven specific messages. And just like the messages to Corinthians and Philippians and Ephesians, those are also specific messages. But within those messages, there are principles and truths we can apply to ourselves. And I would fully agree with you that with these seven churches, there are things Jesus says to them that we can apply to ourselves here today as well. Absolutely. Over here, are there hands up? Okay, let me go back over here. Yes. Right. 2127. Was that another book of life reference? There you go. Revelation 2127. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Thank you. So two instead of another one. Other questions having to do with Revelation? Well, God bless you, folks. Next week, we continue in our verse-by-verse -verse journey through the Book of Revelation. Revelation.